0: Consumer Focus with Martin Newman.
1: Hello and welcome to Consumer Focus, bringing you expert advice and opinions on customer service and the Great British High Street. My name is Martin Newman, and having worked in commerce for over thirty-five years, as I hope you know, I am dedicated to championing the consumer and helping businesses to develop the best strategies for their customers. Today, I have the privilege of being joined by Simon Mottram, a friend of mine and the founder of the globally renowned cycling brand, Rafa. Simon, thank you so much for joining. Thank you very much for having me. Um, tell us h- about how you got started with Rafa. What was, the, what was the inspiration in the early days? How did it all come about? The inspiration is me being a bike rider.
0: Right. Um, it's one of those stories of somebody who loves something and has a little bit of professional expertise and thinks as a way of combining the two. I was a brand guy, um, marketing and brand consultant for many years, right. but I was pretty much i was a bike rider i loved cycling yeah. and i was a frustrated consumer in cycling because the products weren't very nice and the brands weren't very exciting and nobody seemed to get what i got yeah. in cycling so i
1: thought i would try and combine the two and you've clearly done that rather well we've done all right <laughs> <laughs> <We've> done <that laughs> it's one of those rare ones that works so how yeah. many um what do you call the physical environment of the store do you call it a hub we call it a clubhouse, clubhouse yeah
0: right. we're, we're i mean we're we started online. We've been yeah. direct to consumer from day one. That was yeah. something I felt very strongly about because I wanted – I knew as a consumer that the the, the market was failing me and I yeah. wanted to talk directly to people like me. Yeah. So we were always direct and we started with a website and it was raffa.cc which yeah. is Cycling Club. Yeah. It's actually Cocoa Islands, but we. <laughs> I chose it because it was Cycling Club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we've always had this club feel and always yeah. wanted to have a club with our customers. So right. our physical – Um, experiences are called clubhouses we'll come back and
1: talk about that later because i think it definitely definitely sets you apart from the crowd just as an aside have you have you ever thought about or been tempted by you know extending your reach and going through other channels of distribution or have you always felt that really the only way to do it is do it yourself
0: Always always wanted to be primarily direct-to-consumer. Yeah. That's absolutely still the plan and yeah. will remain the plan for as long as I can yeah. imagine. We do use other channels. Um, we, In the early days, we used wholesale. It got to about 15 to 20% of our business, right. which most people would say you're still a completely direct-to-consumer business, yeah. but yeah. to me, it felt like we were fairly multi-channel. Yeah. Um, so we always had some wholesale in terms of visibility and credibility. Right. We then went pretty much 100% direct for a few years, yeah. and we now have a few more relationships. In wholesale again, right. okay. it's just strategically useful for us to get sure. the brand in
1: front of more people. Absolutely, couldn't couldn't agree more. Um, everyone's talking about experiential retail, uh, but you have been doing it for years. So coming back to the coming back to the clubhouse and. What was the what was the inspiration behind that and how do you why is it so engaging why does it work so effectively Yeah we we're very fortunate
0: unlike lots of people who are in retail yeah. in that we are a brand that's about something Yeah so we're about cycling yeah. so we have this this complete sort of motivation and this context for what we do which is the whole point So it's not about selling product and it's yeah. not about you know putting shiny things in front of customers although we do that it's much more about the thing that's called cycling so From day one, I always felt it was really good to get – to convene with consumers, convene with people around that thing. So when we launched, we launched – instead of just putting up a website and doing some ads – we put up a website and had a month-long exhibition called Kings of Pain in Mm -hmm. the East End of London, which was a celebration of the sport of road cycling and the Tour de France and the heroes of the Tour de France. We Uh basically threw open the doors, said, come and look at this stuff. We love this sport. We think you might love it too. And by the way, in the corner, there are a couple of products and our brand is called Rafa. So we've always done it um, and we've always been physical as much as digital in terms of the way we connect with customers. Mm So, A good friend of mine is a very experienced um, communications and marketing guru. Um, She told me before I launched that we couldn't just be digital. We had to be physical as well. You you can't build brands just digitally. And I kind of still agree with that to a degree. So we've always wanted to mm. stage these experiences and
1: stage these moments where we can come together around cycling. I think you get the balance absolutely spot on because you know when I come into the clubhouse if I go into the one in Soho you know it it, it it does almost feel as if the product's secondary you know the experience the kind of cafe element the community sitting down having a coffee reading a book meeting other pals of yours that you've been cycling with you know that feels like it's the heartbeat of what you're doing and and by the way if you do want to buy a new bike or you do want to buy you know some new apparel or whatever it happens to be or accessories you know that's there mm. but you really. Put the experience front and centre, and I think there's a lot that other retailers could could learn from that. And whilst I completely agree that you know to some extent you know you say you're fortunate because you're 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 about something obviously you created that so i think it's ingenious but um while i agree with that i still think a lot of retailers could learn from what you do and could you know take some of the inspiration of the environments that you've created and how to how to do that as well and how to think about you know moving away from just selling stuff and mm. delivering more of an experience and also delivering services and maybe putting those front and center and then sort of around the periphery you know mm. creating the opportunity to then buy product
0: you can imagine there's, there's quite common board conversation about getting the balance right because yeah. you still need to be able to sell enough stuff to yeah, pay for it absolutely. Um, and we're, we're very conscious of that and we're, mm-hmm. you know, we're a commercial business so we can't just um, create lovely experiences and, nope. and not make any product. profit. We have to actually do something around sales but it's, you're right it's, it shouldn't be the tail wagging the dog mm-hmm. um, and I think that's where it's been interesting to watch the whole experiential retail thing has been sort of – it seems to me like that it's, it's flattening out in terms of real execution. Yeah. I think lots of people tried, yeah. and it is really hard to do. Yeah. And it's really hard to bolt something on to a shop yeah. and say that now we're experiential retail because effect- effectively all you're doing is using – um, you have precious square feet to do something that doesn't make you any money Sure. and every board these days looks at performance marketing and says well every pound I spend on that could yeah. have been spent on performance marketing and yeah. get more return so I think those people who just bolted on are probably being found out a bit or yeah. are losing their patience perhaps yeah. So, I, but I think some of us it's so intrinsic to what we do that yeah. we will continue to make it work
1: no i again i would agree with that but i think it's <clears throat> i think it's about integration i think it's about how do you how do you make it a core part of what it's a core part of what you do it's it's almost like you do it without thinking about it do you know what i mean and that's yeah. and that to some extent is also part of the culture that you've created within the business yeah. um i i tend to think that because I see the future of high street retail being led, actually, by independent retailers. I don't see it being led by large national chains. And I don't put you in the, in the, in the camp of a, of a large national chain. I probably put you in a sort of qualitative, highly qualitative or highly high quality kind of mid-market retailer, I guess, and brand brand. Um, is that something you would agree with? I think then? that's I think
0: that's right. I think the whole idea of shopping streets and
1: shops on streets
0: uh, it clearly has a future of some kind. Mm. But but we would think about offering experiences almost wherever the customer is and because we're a cycling brand the place where our brand most resonates is when people are riding. Yeah, yeah that's actually what it's all about. Yeah. And unlike probably some of our competitors we we quite enjoy exploring those moments and helping customers have those moments rather than just saying, we know you ride, here's some nice kit, go and try it. Yeah. We actually stage those rides and we, the brand is present way beyond just our four-wall space or our website. Yep. Um, yeah, we, we have a community now, we have a club as part of Rafa with 15,000 members mm-hmm. and every week there are 400 rides and 4,000 people riding with us wow. around the world.
1: It's like the cycling version of park Run, then. Is it's it? pretty much like that, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah ex- except we charge to be a member. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it is very similar to that, yeah. and I think that's much more interesting mm. than just a four wall kind of come to us and we'll sure. put on this experience. Yeah, it's yeah. it's use, kind of wherever you say, you're you're taking are,
1: taking it where where the consumer is yeah. and where the customers are. Absolutely. Um, I think you know, just going back to the kind of independent retail comment I made. I think what my my vision or my my thinking is that you know, a lot of these spaces ultimately that have been opening up in our high street are not going to be filled by other national retailers. There's not enough new brands coming through to have the opportunity to, you know, expand the way that national retailers have done previously. But I also think the consumers are a bit bored. They're a bit bored of the very homogenous proposition that they see across a lot of the towns and cities in the UK. Absolutely. And I think that's where independent retail can really play a role in, in filling those spaces and bringing something a bit more, a bit newer, a bit different different. different, a bit innovative, different from a product perspective, but also from an experience point of view, you know, particularly where often these will be businesses that will be run by, you know, the person that owns the business will be running the store, if you like. Mm. And I I kind of see as going back to, I suppose, a time back in the, maybe back in the 60s or 70s, and, and it feels more like that where you go in, people know who you are, they know your name. They kind of know what you want. They've almost already got something prepared for you. That's you know, exactly
0: I'm, the experience we're trying to create. It? It's exactly yeah. like that. And um, we have general managers of our clubhouses, and they're much more than a shop owner. Yeah. You know, they, they are visible in the community. Yeah. They have the local Rafa Cycling Club chapter who will coalesce around them. They're involved in marketing. They know the customers yeah. in their area. Yeah. And it's like an old-fashioned shopkeeper, to yeah. your point. I think it's exactly what we're trying to do.
1: Yeah. It's kind of hyper-local. Localization, I guess, be another way of thinking of it. But you know, particularly for you, because you are, you know, you are an international brand, but you've got that incredibly strong local focus in the way that you just described it. Tell me something. Who else do you see creating great experiences in retail? Is there anyone? Yeah, as I say before, I
0: was thinking about this um, in the last few days. I'm not blown away by very much. Mm. I think everyone has... Lots of people have tried bolting on the cafe yeah. or putting on some kind of performance space in their shop yeah. and bringing in content and trying to make it an experience. And I just don't see many people getting it right. Mm-hmm. Um, Lululemon obviously is a great example who do very similar things to us and execute it, I think, really, really well. Mm-hmm. Um but there aren't many that I think are retailers who do experiential retail. Yeah. I think the people who do it best are people who probably don't even think of themselves as a retailer. Yeah. Um, and often I think it's people in sort of more hospitality and service areas yeah. for whom it's just what they do. Yeah. So I was thinking the other day, you know, one of my favorite brands at the moment is a, a restaurant called Noble Rot. Right. I don't know if you know it. It's no, a I, don't, I don't. So why do I why do I like that in mean, in London, where there are thousands of the best restaurants in the world? Why would I go to that one? Mm-hmm. It's not because they do Coco van better than somebody else. Mm-hmm. It's it's not that, although the food's good. It's because they're all about wine. Right. and they started as a magazine about wine uh-huh, right. and then they opened a restaurant which is right. all about wine yeah. and so it's about pairing the wine with the food and it's right. m- as much about understanding and consuming the knowledge about wine as it mm-hmm. is eating right they're the sort of that's experiential retail cuz yeah. it's about wine and i don't think they wake up thinking how can we make a more cost effective steak and chips i think yeah. they wake up thinking about how can we introduce more wines to sure. more people so example. i think the the brands who get it right are probably people who approach it that way. Yeah. Whereas I think, as I said, I think it's if you see it as a, just a marketing expense to do some experiential stuff, yeah. I just think that's going to be really hard to justify. Yeah. And, I totally and you've, agree. you've
1: got to be really, really good at it yeah, totally to make agree. it work. Well, and you've got to have, you've got to know that you've got a customer base that is prepared to engage with you on that level if that's what you're going to do. And, and alongside that, there's more and more examples of single product
0: brands. I don't think they're even mm. brands, but propositions now, because the mm-hmm. internet is allowing you to build a proposition really quickly and mm-hmm. get it out there at cost, but you can spread it quite quickly. People are doing away with all that expensive stuff mm. and they're going straight to the best Chino or the perfect T-shirt or yeah. you know the perfect backpack and building single product brands. And I think that's really scary because mm. they're not taking on all the costs; they're just basically ploughing it into social media yeah. and blowing up with none of the costs of, a, yeah, of an existing yeah. retailer. Mm, so I think that's coming from the other side. So if you're going to do experiential retail, you've got to know what, why you're doing it, mm. what you're about,
1: and that you that it really does add value beyond yeah. just a marketing expense. There's a very, very interesting uh, project in Colchester, of all places. I I do my kind of fix the high street videos, you know, going around different, different towns and cities. And there's a project called the South Lanes Project. And it's all about how to... Create experiences and and use leveraging the 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 space there to bring people in, not just to buy products. So there there was an example of a, a sort of a secondhand stroke vintage retailer, you know, selling secondhand products, secondhand brands, and what they've done is they've integ- they've integrated a small. Tea, coffee, scone proposition, but then they also open up. They also clear the floor on a Friday, and they'll have a band in doing a gig. So they've really started to bring you know, I mean, it's a tiny store, you know, it's probably mm. a couple of hundred square feet, but they've really brought it to life, and and they're really making the most out of it, and you know, engaging really effectively with the local community and giving them more reasons to go there other than just buying buying products. Which is, I is think there are example.
0: there are property owners and local authorities, yeah. or certainly people who have access to to putting on something in a broader than one street, who I think can make a massive difference. So where we are in Brewer Street in Soho, Mm -hmm. a a lot of the reason we're there is because um, the Crown Estate were focusing on building the right kind of collection of independence in that part of Soho. And we'd never have got there if we hadn't known somebody at the Crown Estate and they hadn't had that vision. I was just in Melbourne recently, and we we have a clubhouse in Guilford Street, which is in the little lanes in, in the Melbourne. middle of Melbourne. Yeah. And that's another area where there is a local authority that's trying to create mixed-use, interesting retail, hospitality, yeah. Yeah. living, workspaces. And if they do it well, it's amazing how quickly that can take off.
1: I think that's a fantastic... You're two fantastic examples, and and also examples of where the issues are in the UK right now, because you have very few landlords or local authorities that have that vision and have that sort of forward thinking mentality of how to fix the issues that we have with our high street right now. So there's two great case studies and examples that we could use of... I think the
0: experiential retail thing, I think lots of people, the people I'm impressed by, the people almost who look at it as the experience of retail. Mm -hmm. So they're not pretending it's not about shopping. Yeah, they're not pretending it's about having a cup of coffee. They are saying, listen, it's about buying these things, but we're going to make it really, really engaging and a beautiful experience. So, for example, ESOP. They don't mess around. Yeah, they they don't. There's nothing in their shops apart from their products. They take individual care on having individual designers for each location, Mm -hmm. and they don't. But they don't. You know, they don't fill it with experience. Mm -hmm. It's just a beautiful space, relatively locally relevant with amazing products, and it makes going in there and buying the products that much nicer. So I think you know, being better at the experience of retail is probably a good way for lots of people to focus.
1: Totally. Totally. Being being a brand man to trade, let me ask you about the brand. What's the, what's the purpose of the Rafa? Do you have a a purpose at the heart of what you think about when you think about Rafa as a brand? Yeah, and, and if it, so, what is
0: it? There is, and it has been from day one, and it, it comes back to why I started in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I am completely mad about the sport that I love. Yeah. And um, our, our purpose has always been to make that sport the most popular sport in the world, right. which may sound ridiculous to people listening who only think of cyclists as middle-aged men in Lycra, uh, <laughs> guilty as charged. <laughs> middle-aged men in Lycra yeah. or annoying people jumping red lights or people who can't afford cars. Yeah. Um, it's certainly more popular than it was, mm. but it's nothing like the most popular sport in the world. You know, there's a thing called football that's doing quite well indeed, on that indeed. that count. Personally, me you know, my job is to try and dethrone football. Right. You know, I, I think it's perfectly legitimate that in 50 years or 100 years or maybe even shorter, there is a chance for cycling to be a bigger sport than football?
1: Very interesting. Controversial. Yeah, no, I don't know about controversial. Bonkers, but, but <laughs> eh, well, you never know. Um, I mean, certainly given, uh, you know, over time, we're going to be increasingly aware of our health and longevity and doing what we can increasingly with our diets and our fitness regimes all the trends are pointing
0: they're all pointing in the right direction there are unfortunately quite a few barriers um, which are gradually coming down but we have got a lot of work to do well
1: i suppose you've got i mean one of the biggest barriers i mean if you're really going to turn it into something of that scale one of the biggest barriers is cost it's an expensive it is an expensive sport so how would you overcome that any any thoughts on that how do you make it more accessible?
0: Yeah, you, you need to get kids on bikes and yeah. you need to make it accessible every day. I don't think the answer is – we've done quite well in, in dramatizing and making aspirational the idea of jumping on a racing bike and yeah. going up and down mountains. And and we love doing that. Yeah. But that is relatively expensive, as you say. Yeah. And there's that takes a certain kind of confident person mm. to feel they can do that but it's easier to do it if you've ridden as a kid and it's easier to do it if you see ju- if you're jumping on a an uber bike or a you know mm-hmm. a local bike share or you've got a little clunking bike that you're using to get down to the shops mm-hmm. because then it's it's one step fewer to get to that sporting aspiration yes. so i think it starts with that i think you've you've got to break down the barriers to people just getting used to riding a bike and it not being alien yeah. and that's not expensive you know the, the the bike hire schemes are really affordable, and sure. it's a
1: much nicer way of getting around town. I suppose you also need you also need the authorities to, to to participate more more proactively in terms of creating the environment for for cycling.
0: Totally, infrastructure and safety. Yeah. Safety is yeah. the number one yeah. barrier, um, and that's related to infrastructure. And we have to do all we can to solve that. Yeah. There are things happening. I mean, in most major cities, it's it's amazing. If you go to New York now, and Broadway
1: is a bike lane. Yeah. The whole of Broadway is a bike lane. Yeah. I mean, who'd have thought that I know. 10 incredible. years ago, 20 years ago? You'd never have thought it's that. It's incredible. I've, dri- I've driven in Manhattan once and I'll never do it again. <laughs> it. That was enough for me. Well, nearly had a coronary. At least in Manhattan, most of the traffic goes one
0: way. Yeah, they true. have cross that's streets true. and that's avenues, but um, unlike London true. where they're coming at you from every direction.
1: Well, it's a very lofty ambition to uh, turn cycling into a bigger, bigger sport than, than football, but uh, given what you've achieved so far, I don't think I'd bet against you. So I'd maybe hedge my bets there, but I'll certainly be interested to see, you know how how you are you know how you're how you continue to develop as a business and obviously your impact on the industry more broadly just coming back to your business at hand um i get the i get the sense that you're a very strong you have a very strong focus on your colleagues on your on your people and they are the heart of your business would you consider yourself to be an employee first business and if so what do you do to sort of build on that and achieve that we don't use the expression
0: employee first. Sure. And and as somebody who... I, I spent 15 years in brand consulting, yeah. which um, is a, a a weird sort of field, but um, now it's much more understood than it used to be. And at those, in those days, we, were, we spent all our time trying to persuade companies that to create a brand and therefore a more effective company, mm-hmm. you had to put customers at the center, but you also had to build a brand from the inside out. So, you know, your people were... Your greatest brand assets. Mm-hmm. And it's still completely true. So while we don't sit around going, yeah, we're an employee first brand. Mm-hmm. And I will always talk probably first about customers and riders ahead of staff, I would think. Right. It's just vital that we build a brand from the inside out. And we've spent a lot of time from day one building the culture. Yep. And my number one job as a, as a founder and as the CEO is to build that culture. So we, we have all kinds of weird stuff that we do at RAFA, which makes sense if you're a cyclist, but probably doesn't make sense if you're not. So mm-hmm. every Wednesday morning, our staff ride their bikes. Well, they can ride their bikes if they want to. Sure. Um, they have to make the time up at some point, but they can go and ride their bikes, which yeah. is an amazing opportunity to get out whenever else is working and yeah. indulge in the thing that you love and also test products while you're doing it. Yeah. Um, every quarter, we get together as a company, we close the office and we all go for a bike ride. Yeah probably terrifying if you're not a cyclist but <laughs> some people will do 15 miles some people will do 100 miles right. but we all ride in groups and meet together and, and have lunch yeah. you get all sorts of discounts on gear and um, we start every monday with a big meeting about the week ahead which starts with racing yep. what happened the weekend in racing yep. so all of this stuff is about connecting the staff to the purpose and to the values in the company mm. the first value of which is love the sport so we are constantly using every opportunity to reinforce that. Everybody at Rafa has a race number, so I'm number one, which is the only time I'm ever number one in anything, <laughs> um, because I was the first person. So, um, but you receive this fabric race number like you're a racer, and that's your employee number, that's yeah. your bike hook, that's your yeah. locker number, um, and that nice stays touch. with you if you nice leave. Touch. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there are incredible amounts of moments that you can just do differently to reinforce sure. your purpose and reinforce what you stand for. So I think that's
1: interesting you know and it was interesting to hear you say that you 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 think of customers first, I think in a way you, although you might not see it that way, I think in a way you actually do put your people first and I would imagine you have very limited, and I don't think that's a bad thing by the way, I think that's the right way to do it personally but because um, I think if you, ultimately if you look after your people and you have the right culture and you hire well and you prove that there's a, you know, they're, go- they're going to learn new things, they're going to have these opportunities to, you know, pursue their passion. You're also going to, you know, incentivize them in, in, in all the right ways and everything. And, and that maybe there's a there are career progression opportunities within the business. Ultimately, the outcome of that, the cause and effect is they do a better job for customers you know they go the extra mile whereas in lots of other environments you know you, you don't get that i'd imagine you have probably quite limited churn then i mean particularly because people are passionate about and many people probably come to work for you because of the fact they are into the sport not necessarily everyone but i'm sure a decent percentage
0: yeah our staff turnover in office jobs is is really low yeah. our staff turnover in retail yeah. is really interesting because it's 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 way lower than any Comparable retailer that I've, mm. I've come across yeah. um, is you know, startlingly low. And I'm, I'm sure that's because the people totally get the purpose and they're there sharing that with customers every day. Yeah. Yeah. It's an amazingly um, engaging, rewarding thing to do. Yeah. And as a direct to consumer business, absolutely the people who are on the ground are the yeah. people who represent your brand
1: more than any kind of commercial can do. Totally, totally. Tell me, where does social responsibility come into your thinking? Because obviously we're in a world where, you know, things are moving at pace, Greta Thunberg, Extinction Rebellion. So David Atmara, you know, we're 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 in a time where, you know, there's never been more heightened awareness of the environment and, and the impact on our future and our the future for our children and our children's children. Where does that fit into your thinking as a brand owner?
0: Yeah, it's it's clearly relevant for everybody and we're all realizing how relevant it is. Mm. Um Cycling is in itself naturally an extremely environmentally and socially relevant thing to be about. So the fact that our purpose is about cycling and promoting that and the fact that what we do is encourage people to ride thousands of miles. For example, I'll just give you an example. Over Christmas we do a thing called the Festive 500, challenging people to ride 500 kilometres between Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve every year. This year that we've just been through, we had... Uh, something like 120,000 people did it. Wow. They they cycled 29 million kilometres. So gonna... that's 29 million kilometres that they might not have done. So mm-hmm. I think it's a, it's a pretty so it's a pretty environmentally relevant thing that we're about. So I've always put that first, and I I've also had to reinforce to my staff that we're a cycling brand you know we are not going to wrap ourselves in the environment as a sort of marketing thing and and, and, and greenwash the business that's that's never been the point however as a business that makes and sells products we're incredibly focused on the the damage that we can do or that we that we have done and minimizing that damage so we've had a a full-time sustainability manager for the last year or so. Um, we've been working for about three or four years looking at all our supply chain, looking at everything the business does. Yeah. We um, subscribe to the Higg Index, which is, you know, one of the more recognized and challenging things to to adhere to in terms of being environmentally conscious. Mm-hmm. We're part of a thing called the Sustainable Apparel Coalition with mm-hmm. people like Patagonia and North Face. Yeah. We're the only cycling brand to do that. So yeah. we're we're taking more and more action to reduce our footprint yeah. without
1: using it as a marketing plan. No, and, and I think that's absolutely the way to to tackle it, and I think any anybody that uses it as a marketing ploy will be seen through. So I, I think, think that, so. You know, yeah. people, will see, consumers will see through that. Um, no, I think that's great, and, and and you know, the the point about obviously the the sector that you're in and what you're actually all about, you know, it absolutely could play an even bigger role. I mean, I'm just thinking here as we're talking about whether there's an opportunity at some point in time for you to, and again, not a marketing ploy at all, but how could Rafa play a bigger role in helping consumers to reduce their carbon footprint? Because we're becoming increasingly aware of that, you know, as consumers. And it feels like there's, a di- there's obviously a direct correlation between, yeah. well, actually, if you cycle and you don't take the car and you don't use public transport, unless, of course, you've got an electric car, but, you know, then you are directly, you know, having a, a positive impact and you're, you're almost offsetting some of the rest of your, you know, activity as the week goes on.
0: I think that's exactly right. There is a campaigning aspect to what we do. Yeah. which we've we've not really done much with in the past you know yeah. we we spent the first 10 plus years really trying to build a brand create a business that wasn't going to go bust yeah. and also create an aspiration around cycling mm-hmm. make it a desirable thing to do mm-hmm. i think increasingly we're going to be more overt and more active in in Enforcing change and encouraging change. Um, we now have such a big customer base yeah. and community that's yeah. part of the brand. We have this amazing set of sort of stormtroopers, if you like, Absolutely. that we could we could all work I'll together to do some message. of those things. It it could be yeah. amazing. Yeah. We've all. I mean, there are lots of things you can do though, and we've we've offered free return, uh, free repairs, sorry, on our products for from day one. Yep. So we've done thousands and thousands of repairs of products because we know that our customers would rather have their bib shorts repaired and returned yes. to them than have a new one. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's so
1: many things you can do yeah. from campaigning to very practical things. So just segueing from that into because social responsibility will be a core driver and the environment, of course, a core driver for the circular economy, which is another one of these buzzwords we've been talking about for a while, but arguably don't see that many people necessarily putting that sort of front and centre. But how do you respond to that? Because I really do believe that we are. I, I personally believe that the age of I call it the age of consumerism, and I believe it's dead so I I do think it's a thing of the past I think this idea of or this concept of just buying stuff because we can buy it is not going to be it's not I don't think I think we've changed already or we're changing and I certainly don't think it's the future so if, if you believe in that as well or you agree with that, as consumers buy less, how do you play a part in that? What does that mean for your business? You touched on it there with regards to your customers repairing.
0: Yeah, totally. I, I think we're lucky that we start from a place of having high-quality products. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we design products to last a long time, and I think you've got to start with that. The best mm-hmm. kind of product is a product that you don't need to buy again, yeah. um, that you can keep using and keep using and enjoy and love. And in an active sport, that's challenging yeah. because it is quite difficult what you do on a bike and it does wear through product. But we start from the point of we want these things to, to be bomb-proof and last forever. Yeah. So so that, that's, that's a good, good start point and we're not going to compromise that just to reach sort of, you know, very low price points, just to churn and create more revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, having free repairs and making that front and center and really understood – uh, is is so important, mm-hmm. and, as I said before, you know customers really value that they love getting the repaired product and it's interesting that they like it from an environmental point of view and a sustainability point of view but before that became something that people were more conscious of they mm-hmm. liked it anyway because yeah. it's their product yeah. it's got thousands of kilometres of blood, sweat and tears yeah, exactly. in it. Yes. I'd rather wear that and know yeah. that it's been where I've it's been It's a reminder of Yeah it, yeah, it is it is it's, and it's uh, back to experiential retail it's yeah. the experience yeah. you know if, if you can celebrate if you can use your products to celebrate those moments that matter to you mm. then I think they'll they will definitely be more meaningful to you and they'll, you'll hang on to them. Yeah. So I think repairs, I think making better products in the first place. We've looked at um, rebuilding and remaking products. Uh-huh. So we, we have long... Uh, roll ends and and fabrics and components that we can't use and we have certain amounts of unsold stock because we're a retailer and sure. we we buy ahead of seasons and yeah. we don't always get it right um doing things with those fabric roll ends and reusing the products that we can't sell all the ones that are returned to us is something we've explored a lot recently mm-hmm. um and we, you'll see something on that in the next year or so um, that's got to be part of it. The challenge mm-hmm. is doing it in a cost-effective way. It's easier if you're a sort of luxury brand yeah. and you do it as a sort of super smart thing where... People spend hundreds of pounds on the product, mm-hmm. but that's not really going to hit most
1: people. No, so we're looking much. at a way of doing it more at scale. Well, we we look forward to uh, seeing what how that transpires over the next year or so. Um, tell me something: is diversity something you've tackled at Rafa? I mean, I get I, again, I could be wrong because I'm I'm more of a fixed bike cyclist, as you probably know. I'm a spinner for my sins, rather than being out on the road so much. Um, I get the impression that cycling is generally the the domain for males so how do you tackle diversity both in terms of customer base and the opportunity there to grow the sport maybe you know uh, to be more diverse as well as within the organization and the people that you employ?
0: Yeah, spot on. I mean, cycling is more than many sports. It's male, pale and stale. Yeah. You know, that horrible expression, yeah. which um, probably applies which, to me. I was going to say we both fall into that category, <laughs> yeah. unfortunately. Um, it, it, it is very much a, a male sport and it is a white sport. Um, and that is a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh it, as our purpose is to make the sport the most popular sport in the world, it's hard to imagine doing that just by selling to blokes yeah. um, and white blokes at that. Yeah. Um, so that's something we've been conscious of for a long time. We we launched a women's range, um, started launching it 10, 11 years ago. So we've yeah. been in the women's market for quite a long time. Yeah. Um, the women's market is only probably about 12% of the total cycling market. Right. So it's, it's definitely a minority. Yeah. Um, we... We index slightly ahead of that in terms of our sales mix, but not far enough ahead of that. Mm. So, you know, our ambition is is to get to 25% women um, in the next few years. So right. That's the first goal. And that is quite challenging because there are fewer women we've got to convert, yeah. but we're absolutely committed to doing it. So in fact, this year, it's timely, you ask, because mm. we launched a women's campaign last week with a big piece of content, mm. and we're trying to approach women's cycling with as much emphasis and passion as we would men's cycling mm-hmm. um, and just treat them completely the same you yeah. know, in terms of effort and in terms of engagement. So I, I'm quite excited about all the things we'll do this year, but it, it's going to be challenging. I remember what, speaking what, what, to somebody from Nike a, a long time ago mm-hmm. who said that women's their women's business was only about 20% of their business. Right. And I think of Nike as being as much a women's brand as a male yeah, brand, yeah, yeah, yeah. and yet it's only 20%. Yeah. So
1: whew, we've got to work want, really hard, but we well, have to do it. I'll tell you what is interesting. I mean, if you go into the, I mean, it, it has changed. I go to a spinning studio, <coughs> excuse me, nearby called Cycle, which I think you know, I do. P-S-Y-C-L-E. Um, and certainly when I started going about four years ago, 85, 90% of the classes were all female or were female rather but now it's very mixed but nonetheless there's lots of ladies going spinning on a daily basis so it can't be that hard to convert them from doing it on a fixed bike to hopefully getting them out on the road
0: I think that's right uh, spinning and Peloton you know has yeah. spent a lot of money pushing the Peloton brand yeah, and is doing sure. incredibly well yeah. I think they're they're
1: fantastic at breaking down the barrier for, for women to get into cycling yeah. um, it's how much more down, convenient how, sorry how do you break down those barriers because I, I, I want to ask this before I forget how do you break down those barriers from an ethnicity perspective? Because you talked about that and I think yeah, that's a great point. It's
0: another big challenge. Um it, it's hard. Again, yeah. it's it's a very much a white sport. You're seeing you're seeing a few more black athletes coming into teams, yeah. um, which is really exciting. We, one of our sponsored um athletes and teams in the US, one of our great influences is a guy called Justin Williams, who's from South Central LA and he's he's actually using his team and his own um, fame, I suppose, in the mm-hmm. world of cycling, to push uh, opportunities for young black kids yeah. in, in s- South LA. And that's really exciting. I think you need role models to come yeah, through. And I mean he's probably the most, I would say, and this, this may be speaking out of turnout, he's probably the most exciting and charismatic role model we've got in all of our athletes that we work with. Right. He's just incredible. Yeah. So. Get a few of those, yeah, and I think that like, can change things, but it, it's got to be done, and it's, it's going to be a long haul. Yeah. Um, we, we also have a thing called the Rafa Foundation, which we set up last year, mm-hmm. and our, with the support of our shelves, we put a $1.5 million a year into good causes, I'm and those so. good causes are all about getting young people onto the first leg of the ladder of racing right. yep. and breaking down the barriers. Yep. Um, so we've supported, uh, for example, an organization called Star Trek in the US, which is a little velodrome in Queens in New oh. York, where it's all kids from the projects right. who would never think of riding a bike, sure. but they can go down there and for free, they can get on bikes and learn how to mm. ride bikes around a velodrome and is race. Is there nothing
1: like that in the, in the UK?
0: Uh, there are similar things. So right. In fact, we're a, this evening, we're announcing our next set of grantees, which... Right which will include Herne Hill Velodrome, for example, which does right. similar work. Yep. So we're looking at those sort of organizations all over the world, right. whether it's getting kids, uh, girls mm-hmm. on bikes or ethnic minorities on bikes yep. or just people who are you know, disenfranchised in other ways, yep. showing them a pathway to get into racing. Yep. But
1: it's a long haul. It's, that's going to be a 20-year project. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, at least you're at least you're start. You're, well, you're start not just starting the journey, but you're doing something about it, which is great. Um, where does Rafa go from here? Big question. You know, you've done phenomenally well. You've got clubhouses around the world, in a lot of major towns and cities. Um, great. Direct to consumer business through the clubhouses and online mm. bit of wholesale distribution mm. uh, all the great things you 're doing that are community and diversity and socially responsible lead and, and everything else where'd you go from here what 's next
0: yeah it's a lot of more of the same really I think you know we right. we, we have our our direction set um, the things that we focus on is products yeah yeah we we have a huge amount of innovation there's there's still not very good products in cycling mm-hmm. despite of a revolution in the last 15 years mm-hmm. and and gradually improving throughout the uh, the market there's so many opportunities to make the cycling experience better more yep. rewarding more comfortable more visible mm-hmm. more safe you know lots of those things to tackle with products so we have a huge amount of innovation to do mm-hmm. um we need to do that for men and women equally. We also need to inspire more people to ride. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whether that's taking a lead in changing the sport and making the sport more more exciting, which we've done quite a lot of with our content, um, which you've probably seen, yeah. uh, or it's things like the Rafa Foundation, um, or just celebrating what it is to ride a bike. We've got a huge amount of work to do on inspiration. And then the community side is probably the thing that's that's right at the heart of all of it mm-hmm. which is you know these 15,000 members we need to grow that community we need to reach further into more communities around the world and mm-hmm. create this this movement of people who are engaged in cycling with Rapha at the at the center of their experience sure. um all of those things need to be done internationally globally and at scale so it's it's a huge amount of work to do um but we're really excited about it yep. um well,
1: I, 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 as I said, as a, as a betting man, I'd certainly put my money on you achieving, uh, certainly the majority of your ambitions, and I wouldn't bet against you, uh, <laughs> over oh, superseding football or becoming a bigger, helping cycling become a bigger sport at some point in time. We shall see. Uh, what I would say is, Simon, I think you know you built an amazing business. I think you're an inspirational guy. I'm sure you're an inspirational leader to the people, to your colleagues and the people that work with you on and have been with you on that journey. I'm sure you're very inspirational. And you've certainly created an inspirational brand for the consumers and your customers and uh, all the cyclists out there who wear your brand or ride the or, you know ride the bikes and wear your brand with pride. Um, and I think you're also inspirational in the sense that you've pursued your hobby and you've turned it into an amazing business. And what a great example that is! I'm sure there are many people around the world that have hobbies that always dream about what they might do. And well, you're the living, breathing example of turning that into a, a fantastic business. It is the dream if you can combine what you love yeah. with what. Makes your income, then, then exactly, you're, you're on exactly. the way to happiness. I'm kind of doing something similar, albeit uh, maybe maybe not quite in the same in the same guise. But uh, but so, I'll just say,
0: yeah. I think anybody listening to this who doesn't ride a bike, um, if I haven't put you off completely, <laughs> hopefully <laughs> the opposite. There is so much fulfilment and adventure and connection and just sort of joy you can have from riding a bike
1: and I would just encourage you to have a go. 100%. Simon, it's been fantastic. I could talk to you all day long but sadly we're out of time. I'm very grateful for your time, your insight, your feedback um, and telling us the story of, of rafa where you've been where you're going it's been fantastic so thank you very much thank you very much um so thanks everybody for listening my name is martin newman this has been consumer focus thanks again to simon Mottram, the ceo and founder of rafa racing and i very much look forward to you joining me on the next episode of consumer focus when we talk about something new around consumer concerns many thanks